Hey, I'm Natasha Crane. And I'm Elisa Childers. Welcome to Unshaken Faith, where we equip you to live your Christian faith boldly in a chaotic culture. Over the last 10 years, there have been all kinds of shifts in how culture thinks about sexuality. Clearly, the evangelical church has especially grappled with questions of homosexuality and gender identity. But there's a whole other sexual revolution that's been bubbling up during that time, and it's one that the church rarely talks about. It's the revolution of polyamory. Polyamory is the practice of having multiple intimate relationships, usually sexual, with the full knowledge and consent of all parties involved. In just the last couple of months, there have been all kinds of articles on this subject in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and New York Magazine. There's also a memoir that just came out about a quote-unquote happily married mother and her sexual adventures in an open marriage. It hit the New York Times bestseller list. So everyone is talking about this. Even though culture is, a lot of Christians aren't talking about it, but we think that this is really important to understand. You need to know about culture's newest phase in the sexual revolution. So we're going to dive into this. We have a lot to say about it, but really quickly, we want to do a couple of announcements and of course, our tips of the week. Right. Well, we are so excited to be coming to Detroit next week, March 9th. You can still get tickets by going to unshakenconference.com. And then, of course, uh, we're coming to Pittsburgh on May 18th, and you can get tickets for that on the website as well. And then for our Buffalo and Austin friends, we're coming to you in the fall, September 21st, uh, September 21st in Buffalo, New York, and November 16th in Austin. The tickets are not quite available yet, but keep checking back on the website for those. Again, that's unshakenconference.com. And my tip of the week is something that many people know about, and it's called uh, the relationship between correlation and causation. And correlation doesn't always equal causation. In other words, just because two different people might share a, an opinion, it doesn't mean that it was caused from the same place. So I see this in the discussions surrounding progressive Christianity all the time, where somebody will say, hey, I heard this speaker say something that maybe sounded different to them. And then they also heard a conservative person say the same thing. And they think, oh, no, is the conservative person now heading toward progressive Christianity? Well, the correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. And they actually might both be speaking something that's true that is totally irrelevant of whether their theology is conservative or progressive. So just keep that in mind. Correlation does not equal causation. Yeah, that's good and important. I see that in a lot of different cases too, very applicable to different situations. Well, a friend of mine posted on social media recently something to the effect of faith is primarily an action, not a belief. And this is a really common statement that you'll hear. So my tip this week is about how to respond if you see that. Now, if you read the Bible, it's pretty impossible to come to the conclusion that faith is just about what you do rather than what you believe. So it's tempting to start responding to someone who says something like this with a bunch of Bible verses like John 3, 16 that speak to the necessity of belief. However, it's been my experience over time that those who are drawn to this kind of statement and like to promote this kind of idea, they're typically not people who believe the Bible is God's inspired word to begin with. They tend to be progressive Christians who are much more focused on what you're doing rather than the importance of theology and, and believing in line with what the Bible's teaching. So if that's the case, they're likely not going to care about the verses that you share because they don't necessarily take the Bible to be authoritative. So if you want to have a discussion with someone on this, always be sure to ask first what they believe about the Bible. 
If they do believe it's God's word, great. Then you can share all kinds of examples about the necessity of belief. But if they don't, then that's a path to a whole other discussion. Right. And that's also a good opportunity to ask them where they get information about what's good or what's evil, because typically those actions are going to be surrounding what they think is actually morally good. And then you can, rather than appeal to the Bible, you can appeal to an objective standard for morality and see where they're getting their uh, sense of what's right and wrong action, right? Yeah, that's Well, right. Uh, like Natasha said, we realize that a lot of Christians aren't necessarily talking about this subject, but the rest of culture really is. So you may not be aware of just how mainstream the ex- acceptability of polyamory has gotten. Well, if you haven't noticed it all over TV shows and streaming platforms, according to the Pew Forum, a full third of all American adults now say that open marriages are acceptable. And that's already a a really significant number. But when you look at adults ages 18 to 29, that number actually goes up 51%. So just think about that. More than half of people in that age group believe that openly dating and having sex with people outside of a person's marriage is totally acceptable. And honestly, in many cases, morally evolved, right? And so it's shocking. But at the same time, it makes total sense if you consider how much our society has accepted the redefinition of marriage in the last uh, several years. So if you think about where marriage came from, marriage was instituted and defined by God as a, a, a covenant between one man, one woman for one lifetime. So So when you change the definition of that marriage, then there's no bounds to what marriage can look like. And if there's no objective standard, then marriage is just anything people want it to be, whether you're talking about legal or merely just informal arrangements. And I think we've seen that in our culture where we're no longer talking about a covenant relationship with a specific telos or end or purpose, but really marriage has just become romantic fulfillment in the eyes of our culture. And so we will see no end to what's considered acceptable in marriage now because the whole institution has been destabilized and devalued. Yeah, it's true. There, I mean, now there are so many people saying, you know, well, what's the big deal if you expand the definition of marriage so that it can be two people of the same sex? But and a lot of people warned, you know, this is just going to lead to a slippery slope. But I think that's exactly right, Elisa. I think that that's just the beginning of redefining what it means and people devalue it. And now you're seeing all these kinds of trends. And like I said at, at the beginning, I don't think a lot of Christians are talking about this subject, but because it's become so popular lately, it's something that we have to really start processing, like, how did we get here and understand what we should be prepared for in the church? Well, I mentioned at the top of the episode that there have been a ton of articles in popular media recently about this. And there's one that we found particularly interesting on the site Vox.com. And we want to talk through a few quotes from that because they're especially telling. And I, I think that they can bring some insights into how culture is thinking about this. So the article we're going to talk about is by Rebecca Jennings, and it's called Romantic Norms Are in Flux. No wonder everyone's obsessed with polyamory. So she starts by going through various statistics related to changing views on sex and marriage, like the ones that Elisa was just describing. And then she says this, quote, All of these phenomena are responses to changing sexual norms and declining marriage rates, as is, I'd argue, the reason why polyamory is striking such a chord right now. People panic when they've been confronted with their own freedom. She then quotes another author saying, it can be very comforting to go on a set path, be exclusive, get married and having kids. Knowing that there are options outside of that can be a really terrifying prospect for people who might never have questioned this kind of thing in their lives, end quote. 
So I thought this insight was so interesting when she said people panic when they've been confronted with their own freedom. In other words, when people have been set free from moral norms and assumptions about how they should live, they will naturally take that freedom to the extreme. And of course, that's what happens when a culture secularizes. Americans are increasingly trading the authority of God and his moral standards for the authority of the self, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. So from a secular perspective, this kind of freedom is supposedly desirable at least people think that they want it. But from a biblical perspective, true freedom is the ability to do what you ought, not the ability to do anything that you want. When people embrace the freedom they think comes from abandoning moral norms, they actually become slaves to sin. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Romans 6, 16 through 17 says this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So yes, in a real sense, people do sort of panic when confronted with unbounded freedom because we're not meant to live as if there are no bounds. And when we use that kind of freedom to pursue every desire, we simply become a slave to sin. Everyone's a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Boy, that's so true, because I think a lot of Christians have the misconception that when you trust in Christ, you know, you're free. We have freedom in Christ, and we do. But the freedom is from sin and slavery, not just freedom to go do whatever we want. We actually become bondservants of Christ. As you mentioned, Natasha, we're either going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. That is so good. You know, I I think about music, you know, because I have a background in music. And if you think about a beautiful piece of music, there is so many moving parts and so many constraints that are on on that music in order to for it to be played in a way that's pleasing to the ear. If you just take an orchestra and say, okay, everybody play whatever you want in any key, in any time signature, just be completely free to play whatever you want. It's going to sound terrible. And uh, I'm pretty sure everybody in the auditorium would probably panic because that is not going to be pleasing to the ear. But when something is incredibly powerful and important and sacred, then we put guardrails around it, which is why I think we have those biblical guardrails around marriage, because it is so powerful and it is so important and so sacred. And, you know, it's interesting. I remember several years ago, Natasha, when I was, I mean, this was probably 10 years ago when people were talking about same-sex marriage and what that, this was before the the decision, uh, you know, to, to legalize same-sex marriage in America. And I remember somebody brought up the issue of polyamory and everybody in the comments who was a progressive was saying, well, oh, that would never, ha- nobody's saying yeah. that. We're never going to be <laughs> that direction. Well, now 10 years later, this is what everybody's talking about. And this article was just wild. So there's another telling quote that I want to read. So Jennings starts by quoting author Jessica Fern, who says this, quote, I think people are really nervous that it's contagious. There's a real fear that if my husband hears that this is an option, he's going to want it. And I don't necessarily want to do that, end quote. And then uh, Jennings goes on to say, quote, a big portion of society will also tend to view polyamory as something exclusively beneficial to men, which Gleason points out misunderstands polyamory's roots in American culture. Sexual freedom has always been the end goal for the feminist, 
and queer liberation movements without which polyamory wouldn't be a point of discussion at all, end quote. So here again, we see that theme of freedom, but this time it's applied to the context of feminism and quote unquote queer liberation. And so it's, it's interesting that the author acknowledges that polyamory makes women in particular nervous because they're worried about their husbands who will want to do that. And I, I think this is, they've tried to make a distinction between say polygamy, which is a, a man with many wives and polyamory, which is supposed to maybe liberate females to where it's not just like you're, you've got a bunch of sister wives, but it's just whatever this group configuration is. Um, but I think that women actually do want a committed relationship and the sexual freedom that feminists have um, that they thought they wanted is now reaching its natural end. And so um, in order to do that, you have to be okay with anything and stick to the narrative that we want to throw out all norms. Our very nature speaks against that though. And any movement that wants to throw off all moral normativity is going to inevitably lead to destruction. And, and so people get actually hurt through these polyamorous relationships. And, and think about this. Think about the kids that some of these couples have and all that they're going to have to unpack in their lives. And so, again, this reminds me of when we were talking about this decision and people were saying, it's not going to affect you. Same-sex marriage doesn't hurt anybody. And what a lot of Christians were saying at the time is, well, I disagree with that because there are children that are going to be hurt and be involved in these relationships. But we were looking ahead because if you get rid of the objective standard for marriage, there is literally no standard by which to say, well, same-sex marriage is okay, but polyamory isn't. And then we're going to just see, keep seeing that degrade into pedophilia. I think we're already seeing that as people want to lower the age of consent with children. And uh, it just brings in all manner of moral chaos. Yeah. And that memoir that I mentioned at the beginning that's been on the New York Times bestseller list, that's a, like I said, that's a quote unquote happily married mom, according to her. And she has kids who are right. old enough to know what's going on. And I, I, I read sort of a summary of some of the things that were recounted in the book in people's reviews of it. And I was just honestly like horrified that these poor kids, they know that mom's gone off with a boyfriend, you know, while meanwhile, dad's right. doing this over here. I just, I cannot even begin to imagine the pain that's involved with these kids kids and, and what people are doing. I mean, it's one thing for the people in the relationships to be hurting themselves and be rebelling against God. It's another thing to be hurting the kids who are involved. But you're right. Everybody said this back at the time and, and so many people are like, oh no, that's not going to happen. Well, that's exactly what we're, we're seeing happen. And it's interesting because there was actually a quote in in that article too, where the author was quoting from another author, and she said this: "Straightness was deconstructed, and then gender's been deconstructed. Now it's monogamy's turn." And it's like yeah. they're saying the quiet part out loud, right? <laughs> this is That's this right. is yeah. exactly what the goal is. It's not just you know the people sleeping around. I mean, this has been happening forever, right? This is very specific. It's a it's very intentional. Let's deconstruct the idea that monogamy is important, that it's necessary, anything like that. And then later in the article, kind of drawing out the implications of that, Jennings talks about how polyamory is leading people to rethink how really everything about life works. So if you're going to deconstruct monogamy, that's going to have to change a lot of configurations in society, right? You can imagine this. And so here's what she says, mm -hmm. quote, with more people marrying later and fewer people marrying at all, many of us will be rethinking how we organize our lives. In The Other Significant Others Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center, NPR's Raina Cohen makes the case for handling questions of childcare, elder care, and living arrangements 
not with marriage as the de facto support system, but strong platonic relationships. Polyamorists have also contributed to this reimagining. We live in a world built for the couple, per fern, but what would it look like when parental rights, estate planning, or even architecture? Why should a house only have one primary bedroom, for instance, were built for more than just two people in a romantic relationship, end quote. So I thought this was just so Mm. interesting because there has been a movement for a while now by the far left, those embracing Marxist thinking, to abolish the nuclear family. This is a whole thing. In fact, you might remember that this was one of the first things that made people realize the organization Black Lives Matter was more than meets the eye because, and they've since scrubbed this from their site, but originally on the BLM website, it said, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable, end quote. So it's important to understand the thinking behind this. The reason that Marxists hate the natural family structure structure is that in their minds, it contributes to the creation of inequality. Some are born into families with lots of opportunities, some are not. And of course, there's a whole spectrum there. So the family is literally seen as just another problematic system in society that creates privilege. That's the thinking here. So what we see with polyamory in this quote is that it's not just about people choosing to sleep around. Like I was saying before, that's been happening since the beginning of time. But with the wider push toward deconstructing monogamy, deconstructing the nuclear family. Polyamorists are ironically now looking for ways to create new societal systems to facilitate their lifestyle. So as the article said, they want to address parental rights in new ways. They want to reconsider standard architecture of houses. They want to look at legalities like estate planning. So I really want to emphasize this point in our listeners' minds that this is more than what people are doing sexually. Those activities are going to be used to justify a push for a reorientation of all kinds of social structures. And we're going to see a lot of that, I think, in coming years. Yeah. And I I think we've been seeing it for a while. In fact, I want to recommend Nancy Piercy's book, Saving Leonardo. Even if you just read the beginning of that book, she lays out, even in children's programming and cartoons, how they're erasing the nuclear family. And this has been going on for a while. And we are now seeing kind of the um, the more obvious face of it. But it's been going on a while. We really need to be aware of that because the whole time you were reading that quote, Natasha, I was thinking, here come the Marxists. Yeah. Here come the Marxists. Because if they can eradicate the nuclear family, then the state has more power. In fact, I love our friend Krista Bontrager has a t-shirt that says, I don't co-parent with (laughs) the state. I've seen that. (laughs) I love that (laughs) t-shirt. All right. Well, this article concludes by saying, uh, quote, if the discourse around polyamory is encouraging people to be more honest about their desires, to examine their lives more clearly and communicate more directly with their current and potential partners, and to question the value of societal expectation, then that feels like a win, even if you don't have any interest in participating. Well, I'm glad that feels like a win for them, but it doesn't feel like a win for truth <laughs> or for um, the, just the reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um So I want to touch on the presupposition here, and that is, is that just as long as you're being who you are, you know, acting on your own authority, this is that self-autonomy that we see so much in deconstruction and not conforming to external expectations or standards, and that's a win. I mean, the quote just totally sums up polyamory and everything else in society right now. There's just no limit to what we'll see in coming years now um, that everyone has their own standards. And I think the church really needs to be ready to respond. And honestly, we need to train 
our young people to think critically. I think one of the best ways that the church can respond is to teach young people different logical fallacies, teach them what objective morality means. What are we talking about when we say that there's an objective standard of right and wrong? Because as we know from Barna research in conjunction with Impact 360, the dominant worldview among Gen Z is what's called moral relativism, which essentially means that Gen Z thinks that morality is just a matter of opinion. You know, what's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. So we've got to get back to basics. And we ourselves need to know the nature of truth. And we need to teach it to our kids and teach them logic and critical thinking to recognize when categories of truth are, are being muddied and being, um, well, you know, some I've heard people call it a crime of logic when, when the logical fallacies are employed, especially in this case, to make policy and really tell people how to live their lives. Well, thank you so much for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Natasha Crane podcast and the Elisa Childers podcast for more long form episodes where we go deeper into these topics. But for now, let's remember that as Christians, we have a firm foundation to stand on that as Psalm 62 puts it, is our rock in salvation, our fortress where we will never be shaken. 